Caleb, can you hear me? Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. You can hear me? Yeah, and we're recording. Yeah, I pushed the little mic button on my headphones and then it worked. Well, would you say a prayer for us? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of their love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who instruct the heart of the faithful, by the light of your Holy Spirit, grant us the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in the consolation of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Holy Spirit, come upon us in this time. Help all our listeners to allow you to work through them, um, to hear hear what we talk about in theology, so that we understand theology better, and that will lead us back to understand the Eucharist, our celebration of the Eucharist better, and from there we can go back to theology and study again, as Abbot Jeremy talks about. So, bless this time. Bless this podcast and bless all of our listeners. We ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. Welcome back to the Theology of the Eucharistic Table podcast. This is Nelson Sintra, and uh, also with me is Caleb. Hey, Caleb. Hey, what's up? Good old Caleb Cunningham over in the Diocese of Baker. And uh, first, I want to say two quick things. One is, our newsletter is out, so be sure to go to theology at mtangel.com and sign up for it. And we'll send it out every one or two weeks. Originally, we thought we would do every week, but we haven't been able to fulfill that. So we'll just say every one or two weeks, we'll put one out. Mm-hmm. But go to theology theologyatmtangel.com to sign up. Now, I'll give a heads up here to our listeners that we're going to spend the next 10 minutes or so talking about things that are important to me and Caleb, but may not be to everybody out there. So if you want to just get to the episode and the conversation with Abba Jeremy, feel free to skip ahead to Men and Marker 1330. And the second thing I want to say is... I want to give a shout out to Kenny and Catherine. Do you know what happened this weekend? No, I heard. So our own Kenny Dodge, who does our behind the scenes stuff with our website and with the uploads with the podcast. And he was a huge force in getting this project off the ground. He just got married. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yes, indeed. Got married to a beautiful bride, Catherine Thrasher, now Catherine Dodge. And uh, the wedding was up in Coeur d'Alene. And uh, I was able to go up with John Dyson. You know John Dyson, right? Uh, yeah, I've met him. Nice. Two, two of us went up. It was a great trip with him, great road trip with him. But Man, I'll tell you what, it was the most beautiful wedding I've been to. And not just the most like, the wedding itself was beautiful, but everything about it, right? Like the two families coming together and I know the families well. I know, I mean, I know the Thrashers kind of just by association, but I know the Dodges really well and I just absolutely love them. And they're uh, one of the most inspiring people I know, (laughs) but the two, those two families come together and those two individuals, Kenny and Catherine coming together, the way, <laughs> the way that I was describing it to Tim was it's like they received an overwhelming amount of grace and joy over this weekend. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be there and witness, uh, witness it happen 
And by witnessing it happening, happening, I received just a tiny sliver of it. <laughs> and that tiny sliver that I received was more than my body could physically contain. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like the entire weekend, I was just li- like overwhelmingly joyful. And there were these three moments in particular that really stood out. One was at the wedding itself. After everyone received communion, the priest was cleansing the vessels and the two of them took a bouquet and walked over to Our Lady and Catherine put the bouquet at the feet of Our Lady and then they knelt down for a while for a prayer. That's beautiful in itself, but I've I've seen that before and it's a beautiful sign, beautiful gesture. Well, after that, they stood up and Kenny took one of the stems from the bouquet and the two of them walked around genuflected at the altar, walked over to the statue of St. Joseph and he dropped that stem at his feet and then they knelt down in prayer. And man, like just recognizing what was happening, how she was entrusting her wedding, her bridehood, her brideship and her motherhood to Our Lady. And he was doing the same for in his part and his fatherhood. And it was the day before Father's Day. And him, the two of them just kind of starting their wedding in this way. And yeah. then there's... Wow. I haven't yeah. seen that before. Right? The one with St. Joseph? Yeah. hmm Just so good. So good. And then seeing them at the reception, the two of them just silly, silly happy. <laughs> and the two families and the mother or the uh, father-daughter dance. Before it, Catherine gave a little fervorino to her father. Just talked about how grateful she was for the way that he raised her and the sacrifices that he made for her. And he apparently, when they were pregnant with her, she, they, he had been offered a. I hope it's okay to tell this in public. Maybe I'll ask her for permission before I publish it. Well, I guess I have to send it to Kenny for him to publish it, so <laughs> he can give the final approval or not. But. Uh, yeah, apparently he, her father was asked, was offered a promotion and it involved a move and he was concerned that the stress of the move might lead to a miscarriage, which had happened before. And so he turned down the offer and apparently it caused a lot of trouble to him and to the company. And he was okay with that because he knew he was making the right choice. He was making the better choice for his family. And so she was born and uh, there she was. And she might not have been if he had chosen his career over over the family. And then they had the, the father-daughter dance and just amazing. Just like to think of the miracle of life, you know, like mm-hmm. she didn't exist before. And then <laughs> like she came into existence out of like this marriage bond of her parents and then there she was, and she was like a person <laughs> with a soul and like with reason and will, and she's going to live for all of eternity. And she was like dancing with her father. It was just, oh, man, it was so good. And then same thing with uh, with Kenny and his mother. And then, uh, yeah, then the next day, Kenny and Catherine invited me and John to go to the Carmelites to have mass with the, the Carmelite community up there. Cool. And those nuns singing are more beautiful than the angels singing. 
It's like being in heaven in the liturgy. Yeah. Cool. So anyways, <laughs> thanks You're for awesome. listening, listening, listening yeah. to me ramble. But, uh, so I don't know if you knew, you probably didn't know Ryan and I can't remember his, well, now wife, but they got married at the cathedral this weekend, Ryan Klein. And it was, I guess it's his wife that Nathan knew. And so father Nathan did the wedding there at the cathedral. And I heard that was a really awesome wedding too. Yeah, well, Father Nathan and Father uh, Ullincott. Yeah, Father Ullincott, yeah. Wait, how do you know the groom? Let's see, he went to the same college as my brother's going, to Wyoming Catholic. Oh, I see, okay. And my family's known his family for a long time. Gotcha, so okay. The and then we've got to know the, the bride, and, and Deacon, Deacon, Father Nathan knew the bride from Glen Falls. Right, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, I heard he was beautiful as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was really great. My, well, I guess my brother... His family didn't go, but my mom and dad and Abe went. And actually, I guess they took some of my brothers, a couple of my brother's kids too. Gotcha. Great, great time, I said. Well, you know, his roommate, Daryl, is entering the seminary this fall for mm-hmm. our diocese. Yeah. Yeah. And they have another roommate, Clay, who just entered the church last year, and he okay. wants to enter the seminary. He may end up entering, but he had to wait a couple of years. Yeah. But yeah, man, exciting things all around well we have another episode today part two of pasco mystery if uh, anybody out there hasn't yet heard part one be sure to read to listen to that first and so today we'll release part two and we have at least three parts recorded so this is part two of three so would you give us a little introduction caleb of what to expect here in the next 40 minutes or so yeah so as nelson was saying this is part two of three so very um detailed and important topic i guess pascal mystery is like the center center of our faith as abba jeremy likes to point out to us um one thing i remember from the podcast is how we talked about morality brother israel was talking about morality and how in a way that's it's not the first thing because Mm. Have Jeremy pointed out without Paschal mystery, you know, living a moral life would be kind of pointless without the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Right. And it's really kind of impossible to live the Christian moral code without Christ having died and died for our sins, and that really frees frees us from the slavery to sin. And uh, another point that I stood out to me is he said we we are baptized into Christ, so it makes no sense to sin. And of course, that's a, as we all know, we, we struggle with sin even now. But it's it's good to remember that if we're baptized into Christ, who's conquered, conquered sin through death, through his death on the cross and resurrection, that we shouldn't sin in, as we're part of the body of Christ. That reminds me of St. Augustine's pithy saying, love and do what you will. Mm-hmm. And of course, what he means by that is not some sort of, license to do whatever we want as long as we have an emotional attachment to it it can be misinterpreted that way but i think what he's saying is interpreted in in the tradition he's very congruent with what you're talking about right now which is if we really love god and if we really love neighbor if and if we're if we're living according like to the extent that we're living according to that reality we're not going to sin we're going to be living according to our 
like truest truest identity according to what we're called to be which is saints and in that case we don't sin so it's like every time that we do sin which speaking for myself is a lot more often than i like to admit that's only because i am not loving so if i were to love if i were to have my life centered in the paschal mystery the death and resurrection and ascension of christ then uh then I would not be sinning. It wouldn't make any sense to sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that reminds me, and I don't know if we're getting a little off topic from the podcast right now, now that we're talking about love, but... Well, uh, I haven't but, talked to you for, in a while, so it's good to, <laughs> it's good to actually talk to you. We're talking theology, right? So it's good. <laughs> um, uh, you're talking about how we're not loving enough if we're sinning, but at the same time, I remember a, a really great book I've read is I Believe in Love, which I thought would be about how I love more and so I won't sin, but it actually talks about how much God loves us. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of switches around and it really focuses on how much God loves us. And so in the same way, still the idea of love, but how much thinking about how much God loves us helps us not sin and to love him in return. Beautiful. Well, let's um, bring in Habit Jeremy and Brother Israel and, Ben Downer into the conversation as uh, we bring out part two of the Paschal Mystery. Father, so we've, um, I, I think in our conversation so far, you've shown why you can say something like the Paschal Mystery is the unmistakable center of of everything, you know, we talked about priesthood, the church, sacraments, morality, scripture, preaching, all anchored around the Paschal Mystery. Uh, during our last conversation, uh, Nelson brought up the question of somehow toning down the emphasis on Paschal Mystery and trying to maybe emphasize a morality, Christianity as a morality. One of many, maybe even the best, but nonetheless, it's 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 a moral program. And your your response to that being, well, you know, it's, that's not the point. Is to make you a better person. You, hopefully, you will be. Um, but you know that that can just kind of got my mind thinking about other versions of the gospel that tend to play down maybe the full reality of uh, of the Paschal mystery. One. One very common one, you know, it's like, well, what's the gospel? Well, Jesus died for your sins. That's that's the gospel. Um, and my first, uh, you know, my first thought would be to say, well, yeah, that's that's true. That's Jesus died for your sins. What's missing when you say that? Or is there nothing missing when you say that? Well, probably understanding of what it means is missing. Uh, what is? Why should Jesus die for my sins? What and what does that accomplish? I mean, that's. that's I don't think that's clear. Uh, what that what that accomplishes, uh, but it, it's a good phrase to connect with morality because that's what I mean, morality is about. Sin. I've got sins, so morality is at, at issue here. Uh, but. Uh, what Jesus does by his death is actually deals with the reality of sin in an effective way such that uh, the way in which our sins 
before Jesus were impeding our life completely. They were, in effect, leading to death, and we were trapped in sin, so it's a cycle that we couldn't get out of. Uh, Jesus' death, in fact, effectively deals with that impasse. Mm. Uh, but we need still to ask, and how? <laughs> what is it about Jesus' death that effectively deals with that impasse? And and what it is, is that uh, it, it's, it, it's his... It's his status, if you will. It's his condition as God and as the all-pure, innocent God undergoing death, which is the penalty for sin. So, you know, in, in the scriptural world, sin, death, Satan, the powers of evil that are ruling the world, these are all the same world, and we're all trapped in that world, I'm unable to do good. St. Paul says that, you know, so that's that's the morality issue too. No one, if, if you just heard the moral message of Jesus, but were not renovated by belief in his death and resurrection, you couldn't do the moral message of Jesus. That's another problem with it. That's why you can't start there. No one can live it. So, but I got off the track. How does the death of Jesus effectively deal with this realm that we're caught in, in which we're powerless to do good? Uh, the dying of Jesus on the cross, and, and we have to, we have to actually specify that as Paul does became obedient unto death. Yes, death on a cross. So the, it's not just death. It's death on a cross, uh, which means a horrible, hideous, cruel, intentionally make the guy suffer at length death. What is significant about that? And how does that deal with sin? What it does is it put, because of the one who's dying, who is God dying, who is totally innocent one, dying, and dying willingly for love. What is he doing? He is, he is taking the reality of sin. He is displaying it for all of its ugliness and hideousness. He is showing that sin is the total opposite of what God is and cannot be tolerated. And he's suffering all that. He's, as it were, absorbing it into himself, which we could never absorb. And in some sense, he goes into that absorbing it, totally giving himself away to the Father, saying, saying in effect, take me instead of them, and let it count as the doing away of sin. And let them have my innocence. Let them have my share in the divinity in relationship to you. He purchased that by his blood for us, the scriptures say. That's one way of saying So, so that effectively deals with the reality of sin. What is the father's response to that? To confirm it, and indeed to raise him up. Uh, and 
And so that confirms the gift, but it also takes what is hideous in its display of sin and instead shows that God can be God even there. And let's go back to Philippians. Yes, even death on a cross. Next line. Because of this, God exalted him on high. And so that's all Paschal mystery that I'm talking about. But that nails sin to the cross. That destroys sin. It swallows sin up. And that is the new reality into which we are inserted, not by being good, but by faith. And faith is, in imitation of Abraham, faith is, 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 is believing and trusting in this new reality and letting myself be inserted into it by baptism. So what you're inserted into by baptism is what I just described. Your, your sins are dead. And you rise to live a new life. And so in that sense, morality really kicks in because then Paul preaches morality from that point, saying you dare not betray this new reality that you're in. Uh, in, And that's the problem he has with the Corinthian community. They're betraying it. Are you not aware that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Are you not aware that you have been baptized into Christ? How can you give yourself over to sin? It makes no sense. It's against the logic of him. So, isn't that wonderful? That's what it means. (laughs) Christ died for our sins. That means something, huh? That means something. So, uh, yeah. Father, so I don't want to lose, you know, sight of the fact that you keep repeating to us that Paschal Mystery, it's, it's all of this. It's passion, death, resurrection. So you mentioned just now in, in the structure of this, Christ does what you just so beautifully expressed, and then the Father answers. He confirms what Christ has done, what Christ has offered, and raises him up. But the, the Paschal Mystery means it didn't stop there, right? We have... We still have Christ being taken up in, into heaven, being seated at the right hand of the Father in his flesh, and then we have the Spirit being sent. Why not just stop at resurrection? Why, why The Father's confirmed this. All right, it's, it counts for everybody. He could have just called it a day and stayed forever, you know? Yeah. So why the other stuff? Well, I suppose lots of reasons. One is there is this sense of overwhelming glorification of Jesus. Okay, so uh, the overwhelming glorification of Jesus includes not simply his rising from the dead and sort of being there to be met again as he is for a period. There's some sense of that period. Let's use the Lucan scheme of, let's say it lasts 40 days. For some period, the Lord was seen as risen Lord he was teaching, uh, the text says that, you know, in, in Acts of the Apostles. Uh, he was eating and drinking with them, another text says. So there's a period of time with the risen Lord that establishes a very strong link. Yes, the one who is risen is the one whom they knew before. But there's a, there's also, in all of those instances of appearances, a sense of this is... This can't last in this form. 
because he's he's there and vanishes and there again and vanishes. When, so there's this kind of like a schooling, a training for yet another phase. And the ascension texts, which we have in uh, at the end of Luke's gospel, we have it also uh, in the Acts, it's in the longer ending of, of Mark. Those are texts that show a sort of being taken from our sight, which, mind you, doesn't mean going elsewhere. But it is a being taken from our sight so that a different form of his presence can become available to us. That's one of the things it means, but it also means a a, a total glorification of Jesus. And the language used for that is, is, uh, is seated at God's right hand. You know, that doesn't mean literally over here on the right, not on the left. It, it's, it's, it's biblical language for the crucified one being totally established in the realm where God is with all the, the glory of God as his permanent estate, but the, but still being the crucified one in that state. And what, what it means in effect, for the crucified one being in that totally glorified state where God is, no distance between him and the Father. That means he's in a condition of permanent intercession because he's the crucified one, which is constantly interceding on our behalf, or which is constantly doing what I just said the cross does. So it never stops doing what the cross did, which is destroy sin. And and that, too, then, that condition, in effect, causes the gifts of his resurrection to overflow in the Spirit, which is the Spirit of him risen and is the Spirit whereby uh, we know him to be risen, understand him to be risen, is the Spirit which effects his risen life given away to us. The Spirit is all over everything now, doing not just, oh, he's the next one. No, uh, giving us Jesus risen as our life now. So uh, that's the final and more glorious state than just having to go to Palestine and hope you get an appearance out of him. You know, th- th- that's not that's not what you do. I mean, you don't have to go anywhere because the Spirit brings... Uh, brings his presence here and brings us knowledge of Jesus uh, and brings us knowledge of the Father. Two sentences that totally summarize what the Spirit is doing in us. We can, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So we're saying Jesus is Lord by the help of the Holy Spirit and that summarizes everything. Or Abba Father. That's the spirit that we have, and and so uh, so that's a, that's the long answer to your question. But the short answer is, don't forget that everything God does in Jesus is revealing the Trinity, and so each has his role. The Son is revealed purely as Son in in the in the supreme invocation that His death was of His Father, and the Father shows Himself as Father in raising his beloved son and and the relationship between them and the spirit that comes out from them is poured out in this way so in a sense it's so that all three can be revealed 
and now with all three and and all three are active so that too is a reason why you wouldn't want to just stop at resurrection the 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 person of the holy spirit needs to be fully manifested and revealed and is only after he is sending the spirit with the father from heaven so it's beautiful. <laughs> it is beautiful. It's amazing how you've been describing how like his his hideous death that through the re- resurrection, if it was just a hideous death, it would just be a terrible death. But with the resurrection, um, is able to save us from our sins. And Brother Israel kind of stole my question because I was also going to kind of ask about the ascension. Um, but I think I'll just kind of bring another nuance into it. Um, speaking again of our homiletics class, I've been working on a homily um, uh, in the Gospels, St. John, and it talks about the line where Jesus says, and I will be lifted up and I will draw all to myself. Um, And so I kind of thought of that, obviously, the lifting up on the cross. But when I looked up um, relevance to that subject in the catechism, it talks about he's not only lifted up on the cross and saves us from our sins there, but it's also the lifting up in the ascension, um, which seats him at the right hand of the father as you said but also as the high priest at the divine liturgy the heavenly liturgy um so i guess kind of my question would be as christ after the ascension he's 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 the he's the high priest he's in the divine liturgy and that obviously our liturgy here on earth ties into that but then you're also talking about the holy spirit so how i guess how does the the role of the holy spirit and you know Jesus in the Eucharist, and obviously also the Father, all of the Trinity. How does that work in the liturgy, kind of? Um, because, like you were saying, you're talking about that sending of the Spirit, but then I was also thinking about how Christ is present in the Eucharist. So I guess how do those interrelate in the liturgy? Yeah, well, it's it's wonderful. There's lots of you know, it's just there's many ways to answer it because. The liturgy is part of the Paschal mystery, which is to say that the liturgy comes to birth inside the raising of Jesus from the dead and his glorification. It's part of the glorification of Jesus uh, because part of the glorification of Jesus is his prayer answered that we would share with him the the glory of his as he prayed in chapter 17 of John's gospel father i want them to be with me to share this glory of mine so the 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 liturgy is the means that we have of still ourselves coming into this but maybe uh you know the one of the ways you can cut to the chase in in answering it is to is in a sermon that leo the great gave on ascension uh where he says uh, what happened on this day? He he vanishes from our sight, and yet the apostles rejoice. Why would they rejoice? And and his answer is because on this day, what was history? I think I said this in class. What was history passes into mystery. What was and by that he means what was history? What Jesus did here in on the cross, and even in resurrection from that tomb there. And that tomb there is empty. All that's history. Uh, that all now passes into mystery, by which we can understand. That all passes into the sacraments. Or let's, just to make the point, all that passes into the liturgy. 
how can you make that claim? Think of it with the image, because ascension is an image. So work with an image. He has ascended into heaven. He is at the right hand of the Father. That's an image up over here, that way. <laughs> so he's glorified. Uh, he's in this state. And I said that state is a state in which the cross is constantly interceding. He is alive and glorified. He is with his Father. So Father and Son are there and the spirit is emanating from them and and for our sake it's all for our sake you know the the, the whole trinity is turned toward us and, and and pouring out its life and and bringing us into communion with itself and so we have an image of that there on earth we are around the altar and that whole trinitarian reality descends upon the altar for our sake and you can start identifying it uh by, because around the altar, we do what? We remember his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the sending of the Spirit. We ask that it all happen now. And so all that, as it were, descends upon the altar. The, what's descending? The crucified's ascension and the Spirit is coming here and now and is manifesting itself through the signs of the sacraments. And we are having communion in the reality by the sacramental signs. The sacramental signs to, to, to consume the body of the Lord and to consume his blood is to be united with him where he is which is there, here, same place. No? Uh, you, you don't have to say, where are we? We're where he is, and he's here, which is heaven, which is earth. Uh, so, you know, that's what we mean, that when we're celebrating the liturgy, we're, we're totally caught up into that reality. So ascension, in, in that sense, is when the liturgies begin, uh, and, and where he can manifest himself wherever he is remembered and what is what is what is to remember the lord do this in memory of me that's that doesn't simply mean don't ever forget me guys uh, that's a technical term with jewish vocabulary that's what the passover of the jews was called a memorial of the lord and jesus in the supper creates a memorial Intentionally, his words, do this as a memorial of me. And, and every time the church does it, she finds herself inside the reality I'm describing. It's enough to remember what he did to realize that event is not over. Why is it not over? Because he is risen and totally glorified. And, and that risen, totally glorified, crucified one is always available in the Holy Spirit through the scriptures that the Spirit brings to life in our minds and hearts and through the scriptures becoming sacrament. It, it, this, is, this is a proportion. This is a, this is a plan of divine proportions. You know, this is, this is amazing. This ties into something that was on my mind, Father Abbott, also in regards to our preaching class. As I was working on my reflection in the most recent assignment, I had a, another 
aha moment like uh like Caleb's where I was thinking about so in in this idea of new creation and how time back to our our previous episode how the point of of Christian morality is not just to be a good person but rather it's in Christ through the Paschal mystery we become a new creation and then morality flows out of that and in reading and researching and reflecting and writing this reflection for class it occurred to me that the role that the preacher has in preaching is one of being co-creator with God so we're invited into participating in the work of creation and the preacher does that in the sense of proclaiming the word of God and, and preaching the homily in a way that invites the congregation and invites individuals in the congregation to receive that word because the people hearing the word and hearing the homily are in a in a particular position where they hear the word but then they have the free will to either accept or reject that word and when it's rejected then it's a stillbirth in a sense and when it's accepted then that's a new creation and so the preacher very much through his gifts that god gives him he it and through his prayer and through his preparation in preaching the homily he has a real opportunity of participating in god's work of creation bringing about new creations in the congregation in the church for the sanctification of the church and, and of the world so i just wondering if you can comment on that and and add to that i know i don't know if you've read my reflection for, for class yet um I'm sure I'll have a terrible grade, but just wondering what your thoughts on that are. <laughs> well, if, I haven't read it yet, but if it's like your question, I, I think it'll be okay. You know, <laughs> you're great. Uh, I don't know. In response to what you're saying, there comes to mind the the line from the letter to the Hebrews: "The word of God uh, is living and active." And you know, one of the things that the homiletic directory says so nicely is that the, that the homily should be conceived as an extension of the Word of God. And it even uses kind of the daring description of it's a, it functions as a kind of sacrament. Uh, I call that daring because it's claiming that what you're preaching uh, is has in it the power of, like a sacrament, which is what? The power of Christ's Paschal Mystery. Uh, so, and you, you should trust in that kind of power in the Word if, in fact, you're not just preaching your own bright ideas, but if your preaching is extending the Word of God. And if your preaching is leading your people toward the celebration of the Eucharist. So that, so, uh, that you use the word creation for that is great. It's, 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 it's being an instrument, I would say an instrument of God in His creative act. Um, and His creative act is, is this new creation, which is, needs to constantly be established and reestablished 
in the old creation in which we're still caught up. So, yeah, I think that's a, it's a great insight. And, uh, I, I want you guys all to become the kind of priests and preachers that would really have that kind of conviction in you when you're preaching that I, I, I have a message that is not my own. Uh, I, you know, you use Paul's words we did earlier. I resolved that I would do nothing but preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So if you're doing that, the power is there. It's not like, oh, you gave a good homily. No, you announced the gospel, you know, and that's, that's the power in a homily. And that's, I mean, I experience that preaching and it's a thing I love about preaching. I try to get myself to get in that sort of channeling mood of let the gospel channel through me. But it doesn't channel through you magically. It channels through you on the basis of your effort and your understanding, your prayer. But in the end, your homily should exceed what you could ever produce by yourself, you know. But Benjamin, what do you want to ask? So obviously in the uh, kind of essential to the Paschal Mysteries, our understanding of, of Christ, of Christology, is, as uh, both fully God and fully man. And I'm wondering if perhaps the Paschal Mystery can kind of be our, I mean, obviously in a certain way it is our um, our tap into what how how we approach Christology, but can it also, in a certain way, be our safeguard as we approach Christology? Um, it seems to me that 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 may be the way that that the fathers approach when when they delve into these mysteries of who Christ really is as as he came to save us in the the economy of salvation um and that's perhaps the i don't know it's i don't know if it's wrong to call it both the our intersection and our safeguard with uh with the mystery that that Christ is in himself yeah i think that's a good word for it i think it it's got to be uh the center of how we come to know Christ and what we're concerned about with Christ, as opposed to get, I mean, in 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 a in a course about Jesus Christ or in a Christology class in the academy, you can go off on all sorts of tangents. You know, what was Jesus doing in his miracles, or the or the very modern question: Did Jesus know he was God? And uh, if he did. Uh, why didn't he do more tricks or, you know, I mean, but those are not real questions. Uh, our question is, uh, is in the center. So the Paschal Mystery in that sense keeps us in the center of what the Christological questions are. Who is Jesus? And who does, who does he show himself to be? And all of the, the answers to that question that eventually become orthodox, but mind you, it takes centuries to work on, Simple, simply put, but deeply understood orthodox answers, truly God, truly man, uh, two natures, one person, unmixed, all that sort of stuff, all mean something. But why are the, why that language? That language is, is ultimately the language we need 
to understand who was acting in Jesus' death on the cross. And, and if that one, if the one acting is what we answer, truly God, truly human, uh, then here is what salvation looks like. Or, as I, I said once about talking about doctrine to you, uh, one of the, one of the dictums that was driving doctrine, if this is not so, then we are not saved. Uh, and it's just an example of that would be, if the one who dies on the cross is not God and man, we are not saved. Now, why not? Because if he's not God, well, then it's just another dead man. So there's, there's really no significance in his death. We're still in the trap. Uh, but if he's not man, well, so what if God does a trick? No, he dies really a human death. Being God. So you need, so that's doctrine, all right? But those are the questions about Jesus. And then, and then, all, that all that reveals what? Not just who he is, but that there's no knowing who he is without knowing that he is in every piece of his being, in every action. He does word of the Father, expression of the Father, from the Father and toward the Father, and, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, the, you cannot have a Christology that speculates on Jesus as a miracle worker or moral teacher. The only Christology worth having about Jesus is one that figures, uh, uh, that has an answer to what was that one, who was that one who died on the cross and is believed to rise again? Who is he and what's that mean? And that, and that becomes a never-ending mystery, meaning not something you can't understand, but meaning a reality that you step into with awe and wonder and, and fascination and adoration, and you never will exhaust it. That's your Christology. That's the shape and direction of Christology. Well, I think the bells are about to ring. Yeah. Monks have to go. Okay. Well, thank you guys very much. Thank you, Father Abbott. Great discussion. Yeah. We may need to do parts three and four. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to get off this topic. So <laughs> Thank you all. For the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen.